I have said for years, any computer, any phone, any device that supports DRM protected content is a vulnerability. And if it touches your Monero in any way, shape or form, chances are you will lose it. I say the same thing for Bitcoin or for any other cryptocurrency. And I go even further and I apply it even for fiat banking. Uh, which is one of the reasons why I have been so opposed, even, I mean, I'm sure that uh, Doug can tell me about proprietary products, and, and, and so well, with the Justin, um, where I insist on using uh, open source products as much as possible, because I honestly believe that I have been involved with cryptocurrencies since 2011. I have not lost a single Satoshi equivalent or micro-monero micro worth of cryptocurrency to hacks. Um and one of the reasons is because I basically distrust proprietary software, and in particular, uh, proprietary software, open source software for that matter, that's supposed to DRM. Monero Talk is sponsored by Cake Wallet, a trustless open source wallet that gives you the keys to your crypto. Invoice, donate, and trade your Monero with peace of mind, peace of cake. And by StealthyX an instant exchange where privacy is a top concern. Go to StealthyX.io to instantly exchange between Monero and 450 plus assets without having to create an account or register and with no limits. Making StealthyX a simple way to purchase Monero with crypto anonymously. Monero Talk is also made possible from contributions by viewers and listeners like you. And supporting us is easier than ever by typing in monerotalk.crypto in your monero.com or cake wallet send address field to send us a tip. This week on Monero Talk. Douglas Tuman sits down with Francisco Cabanas and Justin Ehrenhofer, both are superstars in the Monero project. Francisco, aka Arctic Mine, is a member of the Monero core team and known for his expertise in Monero scaling and crypto blockchain analysis. And Justin is a longtime Monero contributor, former CakeWallet VP of Operations, and founder of Moonstone Research, a firm specialized in tracing difficult-to-trace cryptocurrency transactions. The show is a massive one, covering three main topics. The recent CCS hack, Moonstone's probabilistic tracing of the stolen funds, and overall lessons learned and likely path forward including discussions of the positive impacts the hack will likely have on improving how Monero development is funded, how the project as a whole is managed and maintained, and improving the intractability of Monero. Monero Talk starts now. All right, Justin, Arctic, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Um, so obviously a lot, a lot going on in the Monero community, perhaps more, more than usual, although I feel like there's, there's always a lot going on these days. Uh, we had the recent hack of the CCS fund, and uh, I, want to, I want to bring you guys both on. I want to talk about three, three things, really, and, and then we'll, we'll break it down from there. I want, number one, I want to talk about the hack itself, what exactly happened, you know, the information that we know, what we can surmise from it, uh, lessons we can learn from it. Uh, then I want to talk about the, the tracing of the hack, which Justin is intimately familiar with. He, he put up a, a post that detailed the ways in which we may be able to trace 
the funds that have been hacked. Um, and then I want to talk about just like paths forward. What do we do from here? There's been posts about potentially trying to dismantle core, what that might look like, and just overall talk, kind of talking about how we should be thinking uh, overall as a community for steps moving forward based on uh, what we learned from from this incident. So yeah, thanks for coming on, guys. Justin, uh, I guess you guys want to each introduce yourselves. I feel like everybody should know you by now, but uh, Justin, if you want to go ahead and give a quick intro and then Arctic. Uh, sure. So I'm Justin Ehrenhofer. I've been in the Monero community since actively since 2016. And I have done all sorts of things like the Breaking Monero series, ran the Monero community worker for a while, um, helped with DEF CON, all sorts of other planning things. I worked in cryptocurrency compliance for two years, and then I worked for Cake Wallet for two years. And now I am not working full time for Cake anymore, though I'm still helping Vic with things here and there. And I am, you know, on my own now starting different ventures, one of which is the Moonstone Research. So the timing really aligned with this, this uh, Monero CCS hack. So clearly yeah, it was a, little, a little too, per, a little too perfect. Yeah, it was a little too good of timing. So, um, yeah, but that's one of those things I was uh, generally frustrated by people in the space kind of pretending that Monero didn't exist and not building any tools or resources for it and pretending nothing could be done, which I felt would was actually to Monero's harm because everyone kept didn't build all sorts of tooling that generally exists otherwise for other assets. And so I wanted to try and, and build something. So I can talk a little bit more about that, but um, it yep. did lead to me making the uh, the write up about funds from the Monero CCS and where they may have gone because I felt it was a very useful case to comment on because the Monero CCS is a very important crowdfunding platform and has been for years. And I've been in the Monero community for years. And so I wanted to put something together to, uh, to demonstrate what the attacker may have done with the funds. Awesome. Yeah. We'll, we'll definitely get into that in detail. Uh, Arctic. Yeah. If you want to give a quick intro. Sure, absolutely. Um, name is Francisco Cabanas. I am still in core. <laughs> um, I actually joined the core team in uh, 2016 and was involved with the Monero community since shortly after its inception. I started being involved with Monero in uh, June of 2014. Um, and probably a lot of people might know me a lot from my work on scaling, uh, which is a not a core function at all. It's uh, a lot of what I've spoken about and so on. My background is physics and mathematics. Uh, I did my degree in physics and mathematics. Uh, I'm also, of course, an investor in Monero. Uh, and uh, that's kind of where, where I'm at. So uh, uh, I, people that know me, that I've been involved with this project for a long time. And so uh, I sort of bring that kind of perspective. It's also true that I am 66 years old. I'm one of the oldest members in, in the, uh, I think the oldest, the core team, and one of the oldest members in the community, which I bring the baby boomer perspective to the project, I hope, in a reasonable way, um, which is interesting in a lot of other aspects. So that's kind of what uh, I will say. Fantastic. So yeah, let's let's start with the the incident first, the hack, the hacking of the Monero CCS fund. What can what, what do you think are, are the most important things for the community to, to know about the incident itself? Um, Arctic, I don't know if you if you you want to give it a go, give it start start on that. Um, you know what you what you think of the incident? 
you know, things that 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 people should should kind of be thinking about your perspective your perspective on it i mean i hate to say i told you so in a way about this but i have been a very very strong critic of proprietary software since long before monero existed um i strongly suspect that a windows machine was compromised I also strongly suspect that this was used to attack the Linux machine that contained the keys. Um, in a summary, uh, it looks there were two people that held the keys. Uh, it's important to people really understand Luigi and Fluffy Pony Ricardo. Uh, Ricardo's setup, in my view, was incredibly robust. Uh, free software compatibilized with cubes, uh, Intel ME, disabled. Um, I can go on and on and on. I mean, that's as secure as you can think of from a hacking perspective. Uh, the methodology that was used to transfer the keys to Luigi, in my view, was also very secure. I didn't see a problem with that. There's a common misconception in, in the... Um, in, in, in networking generally, that the weakness is the network. And uh, going back to the fact is that most cases and most hacks, the weakness is at the endpoints, not in the network. And this is an important thing to understand. If I was going to look at the Achilles heel in this whole setup, I would say is the Windows machine that was used as a client to the server that Luigi was running on his home network. And the well, problem with this is there's a whole bunch of myths that go back like decades. One of them is you only need to secure the server. This is actually wrong, and it's been known for well over 40 years. In fact, IBM took that position in the in the 80s, and Microsoft, being the startup at the time, said, no, you also have to secure the client. And the reality of it is that the server always has to trust the client because you're in entering the credentials of the server into the client. And so if the client gets compromised, the server gets compromised. The biggest issue that we have today with computer security is DRM, in my opinion. It's huge, and it's generally not accepted or understood. And the main reason why is because what we have done, particularly in the United States, the United States is actually one of the worst uh, offenders in this respect is we made it illegal to defend yourself through the Digital Millennial Copyright Act, while at the same time the likely attackers and hackers are immune to it because they're offshore or they don't care about it. And so the minute you have technological protection measures, digital locks, DRM, copyright protection, whatever you want to call it, that, for example, in the United States, a serious felony to break to even secure your own network or your own computer. Some countries like Canada, there are exemptions that actually allow you to break digital locks or DRM for reasons of privacy and security. Uh, in the United States, that's not the case. And the perception is that's not the case. You have created a situation where you tie up the hands of the good guys and you let the bad guys roam free. And so the bottom line is, the minute you have a device or a computer or a phone or whatever it is, that you can watch so-called DRM premium protected content, and that could be Amazon Prime, that could be Netflix, that could be Major League Sports, 
on a national international level that could be movies that are protected, you have created a serious security hole, not only on the machine that you're in, but also in the network. Then we get into this business of the Intel ME and, and this um, uh, counterpart for, our, uh, for uh, AMD. And this is, if you understand something about computer architecture, this thing runs at a ring minus three in Intel. And what that means is it has a higher privilege level than the hypervisor, which will rest minus one, or the operating system at zero, let alone your applications. If you get your infection in there, there is no way that the operating system is going to know what's going on. Uh, and so if you infect, the other problem is if, uh, if you have an infected machine in a network, it can attack another machine on the network because these things are designed to talk to each other. In fact, I have used the corporate uh, distribution element aspects of it to install uh, Windows on multiple machines myself. Uh, you, and literally, you, you deal with one machine and it pushes the update right to like 40, 50, 100 computers that you have in that network. Uh, and it's done... Seamlessly, uh, each Intel ME is talking to the other Intel ME. So if a virus gets in there or malware gets in there, you're in deep, deep trouble. Now, so so if we're looking at the, at the scenario you have, Intel ME disabled on, on Fluffy Pony side, on Ricardo side, solid free software, no DRM support. You have on the side, you have a Windows machine, which is actually acting as the gateway. Uh, it is has its Intel ME active, or its AMD equivalent in this particular case. And it's running Windows. So it was a Windows Pro version, I think 10 or 11. Uh, I think it was 10, if I remember correctly. Support for DRM, support for uh, play-ready DRM from Microsoft, which uses the Intel ME and uses this, this level of, of attack. And then you have your Linux machine on the same subnet, which also had its Intel ME active, from what I understand. So we can see the scenario from, for a malware attack where you attack the Windows machine and you compromise the Linux machine that's behind it. The other thing to keep in mind is, with the Linux, is that since the advent of uh, Windows 10 and Windows 11, uh, we don't have the kind of division we might have seen like about 10 years ago. Uh, between Windows and GNU Linux, we now have Linux, GNU Linux uh, servers and virtual machines that are running or behind Windows machines. So there is a market for attacks where you use Windows as a vector to get at a GNU Linux machine. I mean, if you want to say in a simple way, I like to think of machines as sort of uh, famous personalities, uh, and, I, and I pick two for my generation. Uh, Richard Stallman and Steve Ballmer as examples of extremes in this. And the bottom line is this. You can have them both on a network, but Stallman must never trust Ballmer. You could do it the other way around. So you're going to have the virtualized Windows or the Windows that is behind the Linux server or the Linux client where Stallman is acting as a shield for Balmer, that can work. But when you do it the other way around, it's a prescription for trouble. So that's my angle from the technical side. That's when I looked at it. 
Okay. I don't haven't seen any evidence that I really would feel that the people, the individuals involved acted in a, in a dishonest way or anything like that. I don't see. I didn't see any evidence of that at all. Uh, what I felt was is that it was a hack and an OPSEC failure. Now, I have said for years, any computer, any phone, any device that supports DRM protected content is a vulnerability. And if it touches your Monero in any way, shape, or form, chances are you will lose it. I say the same thing for Bitcoin or for any other cryptocurrency. And I go even further and I apply it even for fiat banking, hmm. uh, which is one of the reasons why I have been so opposed. Even, I mean, I'm sure that uh, Doug can tell me about proprietary products and, and, and so well, with the Justin. Um, where I insist on using uh, open source products as much as possible, because I honestly believe that I have been involved with cryptocurrencies since 2011. I have not lost a single Satoshi equivalent or Micromonero worth of cryptocurrency to hacks. Um, and one of the reasons is because I basically distrust proprietary software, and in particular, uh, proprietary software, or open source software for that matter, that supports DRM. Or technological protection measures, and, and in fact, right now I'm setting up my home. I'm updating my home network, um, and my cable provider has moved from traditional cable to uh, doing TV over uh, over the internet for for TV provision. And I have a totally separate network for TV provision because that contains the RF. Totally separate from my home network that I use for everything else. Uh, and they did that for me. They said, okay, well, you know, uh, we'll just give you a basic residential uh, plan that will support TV. And I said, great. And it's totally separate, even from a different provider, than what I use on, on a regular basis. Uh, I'd be very, very critical of this. I've said it over and over again. I think iPhones are basically one version of Orwellian telescreens. And I said this for years. And long before I was even involved with Monero or even Bitcoin, I'd be critical of this. So it's not like that's the issue. So that's my bottom line on it. I feel that in some ways I have failed because I did not convey that measure strong enough to my fellow core team members. Uh, obviously, I failed in that point of view. And, and that's something that I feel uh, badly about because I should have taken a much harder line than I've even taken on the issue. Um, but that's, in my opinion, what's, going, what's happened here. Okay. Okay. So that's the, the, the sort of the bottom line. Okay. Yeah. Let's 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 let Justin jump in there. Uh, was your take a similar one, Justin, or where, where do you differ? Um, so I mean, I haven't. I I didn't spend a lot of time looking at the particular setups. There's all sorts of other Monero community members that were tearing apart particular components of the setup in the Monero community chat over the last few days. Um, I think the one of the biggest things that comes up. Um, is a lack of a proper instant response and in, 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 in collecting information about how a compromise was how, how a compromise occurred because up to this point we are kind of guessing at least the Monero community members are kind of on a witch hunt you know in terms of figuring out what was the likely culprit and there are definitely some signs that point to some things being more likely culprits than others um, but no I, mean, I haven't looked at the machine I haven't talk to an instant response firm for this. And so I, I would encourage the core team to work with someone competent to do a proper forensic analysis on the device and get a little, you know, to the extent possible, better information about what occurred. 
but um, I think to, to some extent, we still don't really know. There hasn't been an, a clear communication that this is the particular compromise and this is what happened. Um, we just know that Seed got out and a different wallet than the one Luigi was using sent the funds. And um, at least that's what's reported. And so as community members, there's, you know, we people have to kind of speculate from there right now. Right. But you're saying uh, we should do analysis. We should get access to the machine and, and ha have a proper. I mean, analysis. generally, you know, if you, if you think a particular machine is the likely source of compromise, you should do generally it's done generally good cybersecurity practice to figure out what went wrong. Um, and yeah, there's often many things that could have gone wrong and <laughs> different routes that could have been taken to to get access to the machine. But generally, it's it's useful to figure out what the actual compromise is. There's, of course, no guarantee that you will always figure out what the compromise is, but you usually take the devices that could have been involved, take them out of service and do forensics on those those machines to see if there's any traces. And, um, you know, typically you would give that to a professional for the professional to be able to do their their diligence on it. Mm -hmm. How about for, for noobs at home listening to this that are like terrified and thinking, wow, if if these guys, core members, weren't able to safely hold on to their funds, how am I going to be able to do it? Especially somebody who's who's not super technical. Maybe they're just relying on Cake Wallet or Monaruju. Um, what would you say to those people? What advice would you give? Uh, Justin, maybe you want to take that one first. Sure. Um, I mean, it's a valid point, right? If, if people lose funds that don't appear to have been purposefully incompetent with how they lost funds, you know, they're they're doing things that a typical user might do um, to to store funds, and it leads to loss. And so, yeah, that is that is definitely problematic. So, I would say keep keep your setup simple. Um, focus on just isolating your wallet from other main points of attack, right? And, um, you know, use the device solely for using Monero. Most people aren't going to be doing things like SSH logins from a different machine and things like that. If it's someone, you know, a novice that's trying to just generally secure their funds. Um, there are multi-sig alternatives that exist now. Rhino exists. Um, so that's something you can consider, um, although it is built on some kind of frustrating Monero code. Um, I'm very optimistic about Luke's new Frost implementation with Monero. And so that'll be an easier way to have a multi-sig wallet that is much more convenient and has fewer downsides. Um, so I'm not sure if Rhino plans to adopt that or who particularly is going to adopt that first. Um, it will be used for Sarai, though. Um, so keep an eye out for multi-sig wallets. That's, I think, pretty useful. But ultimately, I think for most people, the simplest thing is just to simply... Get a dedicated device. It can be an old computer. Use that for your main storage of Monero funds. Have a good backup of it somewhere in case something happens to that device. Because remember, at the end of the day, I can I can tell from the time where I had working at Cake, it's very uncommon for people to actually have their funds stolen compared to someone losing their own money, access to their own money. So start with the backups. Make sure the backups are secure. And then just focus on having a very narrow attack surface for your devices. You know, install Ubuntu or some other reputable operating system, uh, cubes or whatever. You know, whatever your ability to to install. Keep the device isolated, um, or get a phone and use it just for Monero storage, or use your old phone, wipe it, and use it just for that. 
Um, I would say starting with those basics is absolutely important. And um, if you want to do something like get a phone and get a cheap internet plan and not connect it to any other Wi-Fi network, then that honestly should work for most people as well. So um, start with the basics. I think a lot of people sort of lose the forest for the trees sometimes, but uh, there's a lot of stuff people can do to just generally improve their uh, right. So, their so you security. See- so you wouldn't say like using Cake or Renaruju is is a, a risky endeavor, but you would advise if you were relying on those, you should use it on a device that you're not doing other things with potentially. Yeah, I mean, I generally recommend um, if you have your, your certainly if you have your private spend key on a device, I wouldn't use that device to otherwise browse the internet and conduct in other activities with it. Generally, I think that you're exposing yourself to more risk than is is ideal so to the extent you can isolate that to a different device dif- and different ide- ideally even different internet connection then it goes a long way um and so if you can i mean using an old device a phone or, or a laptop i think is perfect for that mm-hmm. and and Arik, i'll move on to you too but i just want to ask so what just to, to clear to cl- clear the air, because I, I know people, you know, th- there's a lot of people out there that are, aren't as seasoned as we are, and I, I'm not nearly as technical as you guys, right? I'm, I'm closer to the noob than I am to you. Um, what do you think of this, the, you know, the concept of using something like Cake or Renaruju to generate a wallet, write down the seed, if if you wanted to store a decent amount of Monero, right? You you could have your 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 hot your you know your hot funds on there. That's fine. But if you want to store a decent amount, generating a seed on some, on an app like that, sending your Monero there, and then deleting deleting it, you know, deleting that wallet from the app, and just having your your seed written down offline, is that what what would your reaction? to be to something like that because that because that's like easy advice to give to people especially as you're onboarding them through these apps but i'm just want to hear your your take on that justin i mean so that'll help you in in most basic cases right you you have a a, generally phones are good at sandboxing app experiences so that they don't aren't able to take too much information from each other there are, of course, operating system vulnerabilities. Apple and Android have both had them where attackers have been able to come in and effectively get just remote full control over the device. And so it's not going to help you in that case if you already have a compromised device, make a new wallet and go and go from there. Um, but from most people's perspective, if you have you know a fresh device, ideally, ideally if you can, wipe it first, then install the app, then make a new wallet. Um, make good backups and then delete it from the local device. If you want to wipe it again, then I think that's a very good starting point for the vast majority of people. Awesome. Arctic, go ahead. Well, uh, you know, the problem we have here is that the mainstream is insecure. And I'm going to be blunt about this because this is precisely what I believe got uh, Luigi into trouble. Uh, if you come from the perspective that the mainstream is insecure, which is the perspective I come from, then I would take an old device. I agree with that. I would install a good new Linux distribution on the device. I would not use a phone unless you're more sophisticated, rooted the thing and so on. And then I would go with the basic Monero wallet. Now, 
the, the, the attack vectors that you have with that are very, very minimal if you then do pretty well everything else that Justin has, has recommended, which is essentially isolated. Only use it, uh, I saw it, uh, for, for that purpose. Log only on the same device. Keep it behind a firewall, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then, yes, I think you have a very good chance. It's effectively what I have done. However, I would not trust anything proprietary on that device, or at least I would not trust anything proprietary other than some of Wi-Fi driver or something like Ubuntu does. So Ubuntu would meet, meet the requirement, in my view. It served me very well. Uh, I know the laptop, pre, ideally pre-IME, uh, or with a very basic version of ME. But the problem that you have with Intel ME, and this is the thing that, that I suspect is what has occurred here, is that it can compromise your device even if you do all of that stuff simply by being in the same subnet as a DRM-infected device. And I, 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 I have to be categorical about this because you have a, the mainstream is by design at a fundamental level vulnerable. And, and I'll go back, and this has been known for 2,000 years. Uh, and the adage, uh, a servant cannot have two masters, which is actually in Scripture in the Bible. Today, you cannot program a computer to have two masters. It's exactly the same problem that was identified in the time of Christ. And this is what Apple and Microsoft are trying to do. So we've got to understand at the basic level what we're up against here. So if you want to be a cypherpunk, be a cypherpunk and say no to the mainstream. Take a older computer. You can buy it. I mean, I bought my laptop, 11 years old, perfect match, cheap, surplus from the government. Great source. Put in RAM or whatever and then put a version on Ubuntu with an SSD. That is a very simple. And just run the stock Monero wallet or the stock Bitcoin wallet. And I never had a problem. And yes, practice everything else that Justin has done. You know, the segregation, you could do that. But realistically, the mainstream is insecure. And that's the message that I have to send out here. Uh, you, if you want to be a cypherpunk, be a cypherpunk. And not only that, I will go further and apply the same principles to your fiat banking or to any other cryptocurrency that you have or to anything else secure. Uh, I hate to say it, but if you follow the mainstream, the chances are you will be hacked. And if anything I learned from this is I did not go far enough in my um, criticism and position on this issue. Um, if you can watch Major League Baseball, if you can watch Amazon Prime, even on the same subnet, you probably can be vulnerable, particularly if the device that you're running has an Intel ME or, or a hypervisor. Can you do it with a phone? As a rule of thumb, now, there's a bias here. I'm a baby boom. As a rule of thumb, phones are much harder to block off and secure than laptops and desktops for the average person. Because to the laptop, all you have to do is install Linux, basically. With a phone, you're up against an operating system by design, which is designed to market to you in the case of Android or Apple, or to protect the interests of third parties. Again, we're back into this issue. The device is serving two masters. It's not just protecting you. It's also protecting the Motion Picture Association of America. And bottom line is this. If you tr uh, either you protect your Monero 
or you protect the business model of Amazon or, or Motion Picture Association of America or any of these DRM big copyright players, but you ain't going to do both. And if you try to do both, you'll fail at both. And that's the problem that we have today. So, yes, you can do all of that stuff and you can mitigate it, but I think it's not good enough. Uh, you have to go to the level of having free software, or at least over 99% free software like Ubuntu. You have to go and put a, you have to do all the other stuff, dedicated devices and so on and so forth. You want to avoid web browsing and so on on the machine. This is true. You definitely want to avoid any kind of spyware applications, things like Zoom, for example. You want to avoid that uh, on the machine that you have. You want to avoid things like uh, uh, any proprietary app on the machine that could potentially be a compromise factor. So that's what I'm against. That's what I have done since 2011, and that's what protected me. Um, and so I can only share what I have done successfully. Uh, and I have not lost any Bitcoins. I haven't lost any money. So that's what I would say. About that. Uh, and, and to be clear, that this isn't this isn't a Monero problem, right? This is a, a no. currency problem, right? It's, it's, it's not even a cryptocurrency problem. I mean, it's a way worse than a cryptocurrency problem. Let me give you an example. In 2005, there was a thing called the Sony Root Kit. It was a major vulnerability in, I believe, in Windows XP. It was created by Sony BMG as a form of DRM. The American US-based antivirus companies were silent on the subject because they were feared prosecution under the Digital Millennial Copyright Act. The thing was exposed by Kapelsky Labs out of Moscow. And then they were forced to come home and talk about it because they were immune to this attack in the United States. Now, today we don't have that ability because of the situation in Ukraine and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So a Russian uh, antivirus company is more likely going to sell the stuff to the, to the KGB and attack it to attack the West. So it's way more serious than just cryptocurrency. There's a reason the NSA pushed to disable the Intel ME. The mistake the US government made is they didn't apply that to every computer that's sold in the United States. That's what they should have done. They only limited to a handful of computers that are critical financial security. And, and, and they're right in doing it in that context. But the fact of the matter, because that's what purism and that's what System 76 uses to disable, it's in fact a very hack. The NSA is the good guy here. The NFL is the bad guy. And there's a reason why. So, no, this is a way more serious problem than cryptocurrency in general. It is a major threat, in my view, to national security across the West. Because I think it's only a matter of time before somebody an adversary of Western countries like America, like Canada, and like it's going to figure out a way to get into these things and wreck real havoc. So that's what we're dealing with here. Just so I don't, yeah, so be blunt. So it's way worse than that. Jesse, you could comment on some of those things, but I, I just want to throw out one, one other thought too, and then we could, uh, I think, start to move on to the, the next topic. Um, Fluffy, one of the things Fluffy had said in, in a comment where he was discussing, uh, you know, the, the keys that were passed on, passed on between him and Luigi and impossible attack scenarios and what could have happened. He mentioned the fact that there's been a lot of hacks recently of old school, 
you know, kind of OGs who've been losing crypto, whether it's Bitcoin or Ethereum or Monero. Uh, and there's really nobody really knows what's going on there. It appears that somebody's somehow figured out how to grab people's seeds like the seeds were created in a corrupted way. Do you guys have any insight or comments on that? Because that, that seems to be like a big like a big wow. What like what what if that that is that is the issue? I mean that that's that's a tremendous an issue and then if it is you know what what are some of the things that people can do to to thwart that is it just move your move your monero around to new wallets um i just want to hear yeah. that's hear a tough one um so i would say there is uh, there's there are ongoing investigations for other folks who have had their funds lost due to a variety of means and in some cases there are not super clear reasons why the funds were able to be compromised um and so yeah i, I think it's was it tavano that is investigating this and, and so are some others um they would absolutely be able to speak to this more than me from a general level i can only say that if the monero code base through some dependency or through something that the monero code base had that uh was involved in the seed generation and that was reused by other wallets that use the Monero wallet code that could lead to things like compromised keys. Um, and it would be very, very problematic, which is why it's very important that the Monero code base takes very seriously <laughs> what dependencies it uses and uses very robust setups. And that's also why you need things like audits and other third party review and to be open source so people can actually look at it and scrutinize it and, and suggest improvements. So as things currently stand, I'm not aware of any known vulnerability to uh, the Monero related code that handles this or the Bitcoin related code that handles this. But if there is, I mean, these have reliances on other sorts of cryptography. So if there were vulnerabilities there, then the rest of the internet and, and Bitcoin and Monero would be in, in a, a troubled place. And then you'd basically have to look to move your funds at uh, at a future date when a more secure wallet version is available. Um, so this is a very complicated problem. And it's approached by just doing the best practice and, and being critical about how you implement code and do it well. And, um, you know, there, there still could theoretically be vulnerabilities in some like super high level cryptography architecture. Um, you know, everyone talks about quantum computing, you know, <laughs> so, um, you know, maybe someone has a quantum computer. I don't know. Um, it, it's that type of uncertainty and there really isn't a good answer right now. Do we, do we know if this, um, the CCS proposals that were existing, my, mine was one of them, uh, if they likely will some somehow get paid out by the general fund. I think I saw people talking about that. Yeah, I could comment on that. Um, the answer is yes. Uh, legit, and the main thing that I would suggest there is that if you have funds in the CCS, if you've completed your work, please submit your invoicing and that you've completed the work. Because what's happening is if you don't do that, as far as, you know, whether it's a good you could be the court, you takes the thing over. They don't know if you've done the work and they may, it may get to the point where the things assume that, that it's been abandoned. So if you have legitimate and you've completed your, your milestones on the CCS, get your uh, information in and, and get your apply for the funds, funds as soon as possible. 
So that's the answer to that. I'm going to buy back to the previous question. If I was looking what uh, Ricardo mentioned, I would be looking very much at, at a hypervisor level, at a ring minus three. I'd be looking at Intel ME. I'd be looking at the uh, um, AMD security backends. That is the most likely vector where you see exactly the kind of stuff, and you will not notice it, and it will look like you couldn't understand why. Uh, that's what I would be looking at. To be honest, and no, I think that there is basically a real vulnerability there. Um, again, I also say that because of the situation, that one of the major uh, downsides to the situation in uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine is that we've lost that independent perspective um, in the West with respect to the point of view that you get from countries like Russia. Israel is another one that is notorious for not supporting DRM is one of the reasons why U.S. law enforcement agencies turn to Israeli companies in order to get into devices like iPhones and so on. It's because uh, there is no protection for, uh, there's no anti-circumvention laws in Israel uh, that prevent this kind of research. And once you take particularly Russia out of the equation, uh, then yes, I think the, the vulnerability is much higher. Uh, precisely because of the prohibitions in the United States to dig into these Intel management engines. This is why a lot of the mainstream solutions may not give you the answer, because they're hamstrung by legislation that the Digital Millennial Copyright Act. You have to go to countries outside, definitely outside of the United States, where you do have protection for developers from this type of prosecution in order to do the kind of forensic analysis that is needed. Uh, it may well be illegal. In, the, in fact, it's very likely it's illegal to do that type of forensic analysis in the United States. Um, do you need to go to a country where it's legal to do forensic analysis and break DRM in order to figure out where you have a breach in your network to actually do this type of analysis? Uh, and and so that's so yeah, the, the, it's a lot deeper problem. Than I think people give it credit, for. but the symptoms that Ricardo uh, Fluffy Pony described fit very much with the model that I'm talking about, which is something like an Intel ME attack on the back end, uh, and it's very easy to still crease. But here's the point. If you're running a ring minus three, below a hypervisor, ring minus one, you have access to that ring minus one information. You have access to what's running on ring zero. You have access to what's running on ring three, which is where your Monero code and all that is open. So all that is exposed to an attacker that is hidden at ring minus three. That's how dangerous this is. And this is why I, I have to be, I really have to warn people. And no, the, you're doing the mainstream is a great idea, but it ain't enough. And that's what I suspect Luigi did. In fact, his uh, a Windows machine was patched up with antiviruses and all this kind of stuff. So if you're dealing with an attack at the, end, at the, at the management engine level, I don't even think of a, a professional Francis company in the United States can give you the answer because they're barred by law from doing so. That's how bad this could potentially be. Hmm. And people need to wake up to the reality. This is not as simple as saying, oh yeah, I'm gonna just run a, a, an app on my iPhone. The iPhone is totally crippled right at the, at the operating system level. Uh, so you've got to really distrust at that's the level we're dealing with. I hate to say it, but this is, Scary. This is it's scary. It is scary. No, I'm not denying it's scary. It's scary.
you love coffee and Monero as much as we do, consider making gratuitous.org your daily cup. Pay with Monero for premium fresh beans, and if you like what you taste, send a digital cash tip directly to the Guatemalan farmers that made it possible. Proceeds help us grow this channel, gratuitous, and Monero. What, what's your take on graphene? Graphene is a great idea uh, if you want to create uh, the type of device that I would recommend on a phone. Uh, I think um, Howard Chu uses that type of technology. And he essentially did. But you have to root the phone. See, with phones, what you have to do is you have to start by rooting the phone, removing the ROM, putting a, uh, 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 a free ROM such as graphene on it, taking control of the phone. Now, and then you can run a phone. Phones aren't particularly the best, in my opinion, for this, because you also have to deal with the code that deals that interacts with the network, which is proprietary and full of bugs. It runs at a higher level. I would rather believe that the better setup is you have your graphene phone, but you put your your uh, Monero on a laptop, and then to connect to the internet, you use the phone as a tether or a hotspot. That's a much safer way than having it on the phone. The problem with mobile devices is that you also have a potential attack vector from the interface with the mobile network. So I tend to look at mobile devices as untrusted. I know the Purism phone has tools that allow you to shut off the mobile and shut off the Wi-Fi in order to protect and isolate this. Uh, and that's very helpful. But I'm, I am skeptical of mobile devices precisely because you're still dealing with the code at the lower level. So, yeah, I mean, it, 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 this is, you have to really be a cypherpunk that decides to fight the system. And by the way, once you've got your Monero secure, do the same thing for your fiat banking. I'm serious. I'm perfectly serious about this. I will not do fiat banking on Windows machine. Yeah, that makes sense. Let's let, you know, let's... So that's, that's how I feel about it. So yeah, it's scary. And, I, and, I, and I'd much rather err on the side of scaring people here because that's the reality. Yeah, no, I, I, this is a good time to to scare people. I think, I think people are scared after this incident. Um, let, let's move on to the next topic. Cause we got a lot to cover here. And then so we'll go on to the, the actual, uh, the tracing of the hack or what could, what could have been gathered. Um, and then, uh, we'll go back to talking about, you know, next steps, including with the CCS, whether or not CCS should be abandoned and there should be some other systems for, for, raising funds for devs and just talking about core in general and those things. But let's first talk about the tracing of the hack. Justin, you are the, the expert in this area. Um, you, you put up this post, post-mortem of Monero CCS hack, a transaction graph analysis by Moonstone Research. Uh, I guess for, first, first thing that, that uh, you know, hit me, uh, was like, oh wow, this is this must be what Justin is working on, which I, I found exciting. Um, but yeah, if you want to kind of go into the details of what you wrote up here, what the implications are, and if you can maybe dispel the fud that's out there that this is now being passed around as proof that oh look, Monero is actually traceable; it's not untraceable. 
Sure. Um, so I would say, first of all, if you're listening to this and have not read that report yet, pause this video, go to moonstoneresearch.com, click on blog, click on the postmortem of Monero CCS hack and read it first, then come back. And then we can talk through it another time here. And then we can, you know, by hearing it, reading it first, then hearing it twice, you'll be able to understand it a little bit better. So we were starting with a situation where Luigi was able to look at the Monero wallet and see Monero was drained from this wallet in, what was it, nine transactions, I believe? Let me count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, nine transactions. And so we had a starting position. We knew these nine Monero transactions were ones we needed to investigate. If I was trying to, for instance, investigate Doug's Monero transactions, Doug, want to tell me what Monero transactions you made? Right? I, I don't know. I can't just look at the Monero blockchain and see these are Doug's transactions, right? Uh, there's no way to get to this particular starting point unless I sent Doug money, for example, and then I know that Doug received that that money. And if I did this to him repeatedly, I would keep a, you know, if I'm someone who keeps lists of, of money I send to people and, and document it really thoroughly, then I would have a starting point of knowing what transactions I'd sent him. But you can't just look at the Monero network and just conjure up what addresses are related to a particular counterparty, what transactions are related to a counterparty, unless you are involved with that counterparty based on information that's learned out of band. So in this particular case, we were able to start with these nine transactions because Luigi, Luigi told the community, these are the nine transactions that the attacker received the funds in. Can I, can I just um, stop, you, stop you there? Because your yes. initial thing is um, an attacker swept the balance. So was was it that it, the sweep feature was used or was it an actual transact, nine transactions that were made where the wallet was drained over the course so, of the So <laughs> the sweep feature was used, but because this was a very large wallet, um, the number of transactions wasn't just one. Sometimes this can be done, and usually this is done in one transaction for most people. But in this case, the Monero code automatically and efficiently <laughs> divided it into nine transactions because eight of those transactions had a rings uh, had 146 inputs, which is a very large number of inputs. Let me here. Let me pull up the size of one of these transactions to give you an idea. One of these transactions. It was about it was just shy of 100 kilobytes. These are large transactions. You could think these are about you know 100 times larger ish than a normal Monero transaction. So there's strong evidence here that the sweep all feature was used to create not just one transaction in this case, but nine transactions that were automated and sent out uh, to the network. You can see that they were. Uh, they made their way into various blocks. I think the reason for the block staggering is because of uh, is because the blocks were actually pretty large at that time because these transactions were very large. Um, so it took a few blocks for them to all get in. Um, one thing that's useful for Monero investigations, um, for those who are familiar with uh, with how Monero works, um, when you send a Monero transaction, there's some information that is only stored on the exact device that sends the Monero transaction. You can't restore it from seed. You don't have otherwise access to that. So Luigi does not have access to this information um, because it was sent from a different device. Um, most importantly... What information um, is that? that, that you can, it's that... called the transaction key and the destination address. 
So uh, we do not know what address these funds were sent to, and we don't know for these transactions that have two outputs each. Uh, I like to call them output e-notes now because I don't like using output as like the container of money name. And I don't love the idea of calling it e-notes either, but at least is better, I feel. So um, you can think of these as like dollar bills or one-time use piggy banks. Um, so each transaction will generate these and they'll store usually some money in them, but oftentimes actually there's no money stored in these. And the reason there's no money stored in some is because we want to make sure all transactions have at least two output e-notes. So you don't know, obviously, when just looking at random Monero transactions, which of these are sweeps. Um, in this case, though, the input of 146 input e-notes e is a, a kind of telltale sign, though. Um, but most users wouldn't run into that. Sorry, I, there's there's a lot to unpack here. Yeah, um, so um, going back to the initial point about that transaction key and the destination address, with those two sources, two additional pieces of information, we would know which of these output e-notes actually went to the attacker as they continuously sent their funds. Since we don't have access to th this information, we need to treat both of those output e-notes as possible candidates for recipients of future funds, which leads to more false positives, you know, substantially more false positives under most situations than, uh, than would be common. So generally, if you are conducting an analysis on someone, you should keep this transaction key and this destination address because they help significantly. So that was the situation. We started with these nine transactions. We didn't have the transaction keys. Any of these uh, 18 output e-notes could have been where the attacker stashed the majority of their funds. And so we needed to run some scans to figure out where these funds possibly went. So basically, we built a transaction graph that indicated all the possible routes that the funds could have gone with Monero today. And it's important for people to remember, too, that one of the options is that the funds didn't move at all, right? It's possible that the real funds or the real transfer of funds has not yet occurred and so wouldn't be reflected in this graph. Um, and so people who are doing Monero investigations need to be aware that maybe the funds actually haven't been moved yet. But in this case, you know, I had that really messy first graph just to show you that each of those input transactions have many other transactions on the right-hand side, even though it hasn't been too many months, that appear to have possibly spent these funds and you need to narrow them down. We did a very simple technique, which is all that was needed here. There are more advanced heuristics and techniques available, but in this case, we only needed a very simple one. And that's where you get to scroll down to that second graph there. We basically just said, are there multiple transactions or are there any transactions that spend uh, multiple uh, of these e-notes in the same transaction? And in this case, we found, stumbled across an extremely simple lead, um, actually. You can see on the right-hand side there, all the ones that are colored red, those all received or appear to have spent at least two output e-notes. Um, but that second one there, the one that's very tall, spent all nine. <laughs> and that is very atypical behavior. It's very unlikely to happen by chance. So that is our clear suspect. So if you scroll down um, further, um, we can see that um, all nine of the poisoned e-notes, I'm calling them, are uh, accounted for in all nine origin transactions. So all of our money, all of our stolen money is accounted for in this particular case. 
this transaction actually had 17 input enotes, but we only can account for nine here. So that means there are eight additional sources of money that were spent in this transaction that I have no idea what that money is. It could have been, you know, someone else that was hacked. It could have been the attackers existing funds in the wallet. It could have been any, any sorts of other things. Um, you know, their, their play money, their gambling money, whatever it might have been. So I have not tried to trace backward, although one future analysis is to look at these other uh, input enotes that we are not able to account for as Monero CCS stolen funds and figure out if we're able to find future correlations there. Uh, but for now, I just noted that there are others and ignored them for now. I, I just want to back up for one second to make, make this okay. very clear for the noob that's tuning in and be like, oh, my God, how is this guy doing this? He's tracing Monero right now. Uh, for I think first thing to make very clear, because it, it's not even, you know, I it should be assumed, but it's not even said up front in the paper that you obviously had access to to the seed, right? You use you use you use the seed to pull up the wallet and see the initial transactions where you can then learn what the possible decoys were and know what the actual, uh, you know, true e-notes were. Correct. I, th I think it's, people talk about the seed. I actually don't know why people are talking about this seed. It doesn't okay. matter that you actually have a seed. All that matters is, so like for, for instance, I don't have the private send key of the um, Monero CCS wallet. I don't have it. But the reason I was able to start with investigation is because I was told that these are the transactions to investigate, right? Luigi posts a list of transactions. That's all I need. I don't need the seed. So what information um, did the seed give you then? You're saying nothing. It added nothing I to mean, this analysis? The, Luigi used the seed to get these transactions, right? Um, but I don't have the seed. So I think it's it's better for people to understand it's not about who has a seed or whatever it is. It's, no, no, but I'm you, saying, are you able to garner a list of transactions a, you're at outside, the... You're not an outside observer viewing a Monero transactions. These, yes, Luigi had the seed and then he gave you the information on what the transactions were, right? From, that, that could only be garnered from somebody who has the seed. Kind of. Um, I, I, would, I would think it would, it's probably better to just throw the seed aside and just think of it. Do you have a list of transactions that the target has received? Just start, start there, ignore seeds. It could be done across multiple seeds, multiple wallets. It could be multiple participants that send fund, send, sent funds to the same target, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. um, all that matters is that you have the list of transactions and ideally the transaction key and other information to narrow down what particular output enotes were received by that party, which substantially reduced false positives. Um, so think of it that way. Do Are you able to get a list from someone for uh, transactions received by a target? That's the important bit. Um, yeah. So what would be the other instances where you would get that list other than from, you're saying like from an exchange? Um, yeah, like someone tells you for some reason. Um, the simplest case is you are the person who sent funds to someone, so you know what transaction they received it in. That's the mm -hmm. simplest case. But mm -hmm. any other means you can come across that information is, you know, you get a list of transactions from somewhere, right? right. Um, but they can't just be, to your point, this list cannot just be conjured with a magic wand. Like, for example, when I, I did the example, Doug, I want a list of your transactions. How am I supposed to find that? I only know what transactions I sent you. I don't know what Arctic Mine sent you. I have no idea. 
So I, I can't just conjure that and add it to a list. I, I would need to ask Arctic Mine. I'd like the list of transactions and go on from there and, right. and other similar methods. Right. Yeah, that, that was the, the, the very general point I was trying to make, right? So okay, okay. Yeah. Yep, so you need to start from somewhere, right? We we were not, if we were starting from a situation where, you know, money was stolen, but Luigi didn't tell us what transactions they were stolen in, first of all, that'd be very suspicious. But second of all, yeah, you, you would not be able to really go through or look at a graph because you don't know where in the graph to start looking. Um, and uh, that's... One of the benefits benefits for most people using Monero, like if you're just sending money to a friend and, you know, how do people know to look somewhere in a graph and to start correlating data in particular ways? Um, at but least for this particular type of analysis. But a Monero graph does exist. It's not like one doesn't mm -hmm. exist. Um, yeah, you can exactly. Only... Right. So go, if you want to expound on that. Monero transaction graphs are purposely complex. And the Monero community and the Monero Research Lab in particular have spent years making it hard to just trace through arbitrary transactions. Um, for, for years, I've talked in the Breaking Monero series about the difference between arbitrary transactions and targeted transactions. And in Monero, there's, you, you, know, you really need to apply different threat models to both. And um, this, you know, this analysis builds on all the information that's explained in Breaking Monero, um, particularly the poisoned output episode. Um, and so... That's the, the fundamental analysis we're doing here. We're taking, okay, here's new money that was created. It is a particular output e-note. You're not fooling anyone. Money was created here. We don't know how much money is in this bag, but money went into one of these two bags, or perhaps both of these bags. And let's try to figure out what future <laughs> transactions appear to have possibly spent them. You get a bunch of noise with other transactions that exist with, with other people that appear to spend this money and aren't actually spending it. And then you, ne you need to narrow it down. Um, and sometimes it's successful. In this case, it appears to be highly successful. In some cases, you're much more likely to be unsuccessful or come across false positives or whatever it is. It's not deterministic. Money came from here and definitely went here like it is with Bitcoin. Every transaction graph is complex and you are, um, you know, in some ways fighting the odds to, to put together this type of research, but there's certainly information you can investigate. Right. which is what this report details. Right. So we started our investigation. We found an extremely clear suspect. Um, we have nine transactions that were made, and then we have inputs. All of these nine, or we have distinct inputs in one transaction from all of these nine uh, transactions, which leads to the very, very clear lead. Um, so... We, that's the BB77D transaction. Um, so then we said, okay, well, if funds ended up here, let's run this analysis again with all of the outputs that this made. And what was interesting in this case is that this transaction that appears to have swept all the stolen funds again created 11 outputs, which is very atypical. Um, so if you are sending money to an exchange, Typically, like, like suppose you were just going to, with normal Monero wallet software, send a full balance of your wallet to an exchange. You only need two containers of money to do this. In fact, you only need one, but the protocol makes you do two. You take all of the funds, you put them in a new bucket, you put a nice label that says for exchange on it that is secretly shared with fun self-addressed magic with the exchange, um, the exchange's wallet. And then you have the second one and you just say, 
oh, well, the protocol is making me make the second one. I'm going to put a zero amount label and just toss it off somewhere. So you only need two. But we had 11 here, which is atypical. And so part of the analysis was really around the idea that there's 11 here. Why are there 11? Why might this exist? What is the attacker trying to do this fun with his funds? Is it the case that there were you know, 11 hackers involved with this attack and they need to be paid proportionally. And so it's just split and paid out. That's one uh, theoretical option. I don't think that is the case based off future activity, which I can get to, but um, it's one option that's on the table. Or maybe they just felt that they were trying to to um, structure funds by putting like small deposits in different places. Who knows? There's, there's all sorts of potential activities. But my best guess is that they were using Monorio pocket change feature, which takes um, funds that are deposited into the wallet. And then um, when the holder of that wallet initiates a send, for example, to an exchange, instead of just creating a simple transaction that has two outputs, you know, one to the exchange and one that is changed back to the recipient or zero in case they're sending the full balance, it creates 11 additional, well, in the, it depends on the version that the, well, the person is using. Around the time the attacker sent the funds, very shortly before, there was an update that changed this. But regardless of which version of Monoruyo the user was using, this activity could be explained by Monoruyo's pocket change feature. Um, and so the idea is Monero has this limitation of having a 10 lock block on spending funds. Basically, whenever you receive a new uh, output e-note, um, you need to wait 10 blocks before you can spend that particular uh, e-note. To try and help mitigate this disadvantage, Monorio implemented this pocket change feature, which is either opt-in or opt-out. I'm actually not familiar. Um, but it splits funds into several buckets so that in the future, when you need to spend funds again, you are more likely to have, you know, spend, let's say the first two uh, of those e-notes, but then you have nine other uh, e-notes that are available to then immediately spend instead of having to wait a full cycle of those 10 blocks. But this is interesting because it means for the second transaction, instead of simply investigating two e-notes, we are invest inv uh, investigating 11, which definitely helps. And so we ran um, what with Moonstone Research we call a Crescent Discovery Report, which allows us to prepare information about where funds are spent from there. And we come across uh, transactions, uh, sorry, we come across, uh, one second, I'm gonna find myself in the report. Uh, we come across under, it says under second Crescent Discovery Report, we come across two transactions that are flagged, 2C5B4 and 06550. These each have two or more matching e-notes, um, one of which has six. So that sixth one is, is inherently suspicious. We're going to focus on that one to begin with, um, and we're going to go from there. Actually, <clears throat> sorry, a lot of talking. I want to scroll up a tiny bit, just the table right before. So from the previous transaction analysis, where we had you know the starting funds, and we had um, you know, that, that one major nine input matching transaction on the side. We also had all these transactions, which are most likely false positives. I, and I want to explain why with Monero you have false positives. 
um, based off how the ring signatures work. Basically, with ring signatures, it invites anyone without any participation whatsoever to pretend to spend other people's money. And so this creates a mess that you need to weed through if you're an investigator. And so I wanted to explain my reasoning on the right there for why I felt that these other transactions on the left were most likely false positives as opposed to likely spends of funds. In this first case, this 32 BAF transaction, with four matching e-notes, which is a pretty solid number of match, matching e-notes in, in typical cases, um, had a massive number of input rings that had 99. So you have 99 times 16 inputs <laughs> and 99 times 15 decoys that are involved in this transaction. So there's a lot of a lot of decoys involved in this time period for this transaction. So compared to the other leads, this this would have been a potential lead if there were not other much, much better leads. Um, so I just wanted to make a note of that there. And for these other transactions that only had two matching e-notes, in this particular case where we have basically twice the amount of money that we're trying to search through because we didn't have the transaction key and destination address, we're going to come across a lot more false positives. And so transactions that have two matching e-notes are much more likely in this type of case than a narrow case. And so I pretty safely wrote these off as much more likely to just be noise that was just generated by the protocol um, due to normal activity. And so it's unlikely these other transactions were actually involved. So just to summarize for everyone involved here, because there's a lot of talking, we started with nine Monero transactions that were stolen. We investigated the destination of funds from these nine Monero transactions. We came across one clear lead um, from a transaction that probably spent all of these um, all of these funds. And then we investigated the destination of that transaction for its nine source of funds. And we ended up with two transaction leads, one of which was six, one of which was two. I decided to run another Crescent Discovery report using both of these input transactions. Um, and we came across this final picture that I have um, that analyzes the relationship. Um, it's the one just above Doug there. Um, and so we see what is the most likely transaction graph that the attacker participated for uh, participated in for going through three hops of Monero transactions. So first, we have the transactions on the left that were immediately stolen. Then we have that next one on the left, which is the big consolidation transaction. Then we have the one at the top, which um, is yeah. Then we have the one at the top. Then we have the one like a little bit to the right. And then on the far rightmost column, we have all sorts of future other potential transactions and leads to look at from here with less of a clear investigation at this point in time. But this analysis was only done, I mean, I'd say 24 hours, but it was really done like six hours <laughs> after the uh, after the investigator. And the rest of the time was just report creation. Um, so you can see here, we were able to trace forward beyond just the initial transaction that the attacker made for an additional three transactions that are uh, created in, in a highly high likelihood. I have a summary of what probably happened there. And then under the exchange deposit section, I have three transactions, which if you are a Monero exchanger service, you definitely should check to see if you received proceeds um, in those three transactions, BB77D, 0655, or 2C5B. Obviously, there's no guarantee that this attacker sent funds to an exchange or any service. Maybe they're sending money to their own wallets, whatever it is. 
But if you are an exchange, you definitely should check to see if you receive these funds. And if you did, you can contact Moonstone Research and we can advise on next steps from you know compliance, regulatory steps, whatever it is, on uh, on how to approach a situation if you receive these transactions. So that is the that's the high level of what happened um, here. We um, due to how Monorio Pocket Change works, it's possible that they sent all three of these deposits to either instant exchangers or Kraken or Binance or whatever it is. So um, there's obviously no guarantee with Monero investigations that you're going to have good leads and that um, you're able to definitively know money went to a particular way. You know, there's all sorts of other paths money could have taken, but this is the likely path. And so if you are an exchange, um, because of this analysis, we have a lot, we have these leads that we did not have before. So. All right. How... I'll, I'll end it there. <laughs> no, that, that that was great. I mean, it's amazing that you were able to uh, compile this report in such a short amount of time. Um, once again, though, just, just, just to zoom out, for those watching this, what, what does this, what does this say about Monero's traceability for the average user that's using Monero? Uh, do they, they're looking at this, they're like, oh, wow, can, cause that, does that mean somebody can you know, view into my transactions in such a way? Just give us some insight um, into that. Once again, Justin, if you can just kind of for I'll the- I'll give it to Arctic Mine in a second, but it, I mean, it ultimately means there's room for improvement is ultimately what it means. Um, and um, I, this, this is why researchers have been interested in this stuff for a while, but- uh, um, Go ahead, Arctic. Okay, uh, let me. Uh, this is a really interesting analysis, and of course, I have not had the chance at this point to completely analyze and read the report, which, uh, as Justin quite correctly has pointed out, uh, is a must be even intelligent comment on this thing. Um, there are a couple of things I would like to mention in a more general sense, and also I have, and, and because many people will know that I am an expert witness in a, in the court case in the United States that is happening uh, in February. Uh, it's been uh, continued again. So I am limited, even in this particular case, in what I can say. On top of that, we're dealing with what is basically an active investigation with a criminal and engaged in active activity. So again, that precludes for me commenting on some of the overall answers. But there's certain things I can say uh, that are both public knowledge uh, that I will say. The first one is that I was asked understand in Washington, D.C., is Monero, uh, the, uh, the traceability question. And to the surprise of the um, prosecutor, my answer is that it is. Because the way the question was worded, allowed any in sort of a very uh, minimal situation. So. Uh, realistically, if you really, really want to min make Monero untraceable to the point that I would stand under oath and a stand and say that it's not traceable, as a minimum, you would require two things, in my opinion. The first one is a full membership proof, i.e. the kind of thing that uh, Luke Parker talked about in uh, MoneroCon. And quite honestly, you would also need a very large blockchain, some about the size of Ether, 
Um, I've talked about, I've been a very strong critic of uh, blockchain surveillance and uh, blockchain analysis. Uh, the nice thing about what uh, Justin has done is he's basically disclosed everything and the assumptions right uh, uh, in place. We avoid a lot of the, sort of the problems associated with this. But you really have to need, I like to say, bury them in the analysis companies or the blockchain surveillance companies, let them drown in the ether because of the sheer size of the Ethereum blockchain. Alone, size and volume is, is brutal. I'm not going to get into commenting on the details. This is not a how to learn the Monero 101 because it could easily evolve into that, obviously, for the reasons in, in, in place. But I would say those would be my two criteria for me to change my testimony on uh, uh, that, that I did give. This is public information in court. Uh, so that's as far as I would go on that issue. Um, I remain very much a skeptic of this, uh, even in Bitcoin. Um, I think uh, it is highly unreliable at best. And I think a skilled um, criminal can essentially outdo it. Now, the much simpler problem is that whoever it is, it's, if they try to send this money to an exchange and uh, claim that you know they're going to have a real source of funds question, which is actually way more serious, and that is they're going to have to go to that exchange and say, okay, where did you get $450,000 for the Monero? And that is an issue that that uh, person is going to have to face with. And in extreme examples, there was a very famous case of a drug dealer in Mexico. He had a couple billion dollars in U.S. cash sitting in his home. And the reason it's not simply that easy in this day and age to move large amounts of what is essentially a cash-like asset unless you have a plausible and reasonable source of funds trail that you can provide a bank or you can provide an exchange, where did you get this money from? And that, I think, is going to be the biggest barrier that the attack is going to have here, to be on, to be blunt. Um, but that's as far as I'm willing to go on that. Yes, I do believe that Monero is traceable. I've even testified to that effect. Uh, I think you need uh, a very strong... Uh, a full membership group, but also a large transaction volume in order to go to that. That's where the the, the project is going. Uh, and yes, increasing the, long, the ring size is an option, but ultimately we're going to have to put this to rest with both a full membership proof and increased adoption to the points of the comparable to Ethereum. And then you are in a situation where you could really start saying, well, this is a risk. All right. Was well, one more thing I would say uh, that the unique fact that you that Justin had the information, uh, Moonshine Ruiz had the had the uh, information on the actual transactions is a huge advantage. Yeah. But typically you wouldn't have a monitor, and this uh, this has to be made clear because here we have a situation where the sender, of the trans where the owner of the seals in the wallet could identify the specific transactions and then provide this information to the investigator. So this is a huge advantage in this case. That you typically would not have in Monero, so that is I totally concur with what Justin said on this point. I mean, and there are elements about it that I really don't want to get into because I'm I'm going into I think very dangerous territory as to what has happened that may or may not be fair. Yeah, I, I just want to stress that too. That's what I, you know. Uh... For those watching, they, they might be looking at this report and thinking, "Wow, uh, when when I send Monero around, can it can it?" Can th things be deduced in the way Justin has has done here? But that's not necessarily the case unless they've given up uh, information about their transactions 
or there was some kind of EAE attack, right? Uh, otherwise, well, an EAE. The, the, this is where you start getting into questions of clustering, and, and are you actually getting correlating information? What, how, how you impact your errors, and so on. Uh, and this is where I mean, this is. I mean, I'm currently working on this stuff myself as part of my work on the, on this case, and so I have to be very careful again. But um, there is a lot of unreliability, but there's only one thing generally in, and I'm talking more in this case. I spend more Bitcoin than Monero, but it does definitely apply in this case. Is when you have uh, large numbers of transactions that are coalesced across them into one transaction or two transactions, that's the one case where this stuff can actually have a chance of working. Um, and to the degree that's occurring, um, you know, this is the cases that you look at Bitcoin where uh, companies action analysis and cipher trace and so on, and they go ahead and they say, uh, well, you know, we can show that all these merge into this point and hence this is the argument. That's the one case where you actually have some kind of reasonable statistics in the, in, in the system. Uh, and the bigger the, the clustering is, of course, the more effective it is. But most cases, you typically don't have that information, even in Bitcoin. And so you end up with essentially wild guesses. So that's the, what, the question. What, but like I said, I'm not going to go into how to pursue this any further because of the it is an active investigation. There is a criminal involved here, or criminal activity involved here. So it's not something that I really want to go, uh, a route that I want to pursue. Looking at this, I mean, the fact that the it lo looks like Monero-Uju um, pocket change was used and that it was initially swept in nine transactions, what should the hack hacker have done to not left as many traceable well, tracks as he did? I I'm not going to touch that question. But that's specifically the question that I don't want to answer. And, and, and for the reasons that that's exactly the kind of question I don't want to answer. It's good information to get out there, right? So people know how to... But I would wait some time. I mean, I think the, the, the problem that we're dealing with here also is that we're dealing with a um, an active investigation and an active criminal. And that's why I, I really don't want to go in that direction. He's probably he'll probably be watching this. Uh, obviously, so. yeah, who probably will be watching this exactly. Why am I gonna, you know, I'm not gonna do this, I'm not gonna do, I'm yeah. not gonna comment on that. Maybe, maybe he'll send the Monero back, right? And this will just be a, a, a great lesson, a great lesson learned. Um, all right, I guess we could move on to, to the next to the next topic. Um, well, I so I guess you, you don't want to expound further on that though. Before we leave it though, wouldn't it have just made sense for the hacker to send a transaction out as opposed to sweeping this thing nine different times? Like that seems like I don't want to comment on that odd behavior. Okay, um, all right, so we, we won't badger that anymore if you guys don't feel comfortable <laughs> answering these questions. Uh, so we'll move on to the, the final thing, which is a path, path forward, right? So what, what can we learn from all this? I guess, first and foremost, uh, with the CCS itself, right? We talked about the hacking and what could have been done there. Um, but yeah, I mean, what, what you know, if we're going to continue with some kind of um, community-controlled CCS fund, how in what way can it be built where there, there won't be this vulnerability where we won't have to worry uh, about, you know, funds being hacked? Uh, no maybe using multi-sig, things like that. 
my, my thought on this topic is that the biggest and most important defense that we should have in the case of something like the, the CCS is simply to diversify the thing, have multiple funds. And, and this is one of the reasons where I'm a very strong supporter of what Magic has done, but I have refused to participate in it. Um, what we need in an area of you know, the CCS moving forward, and it can continue being part of the picture, is that we need broad choices for both the donors and the developers. They're very different needs. They're very different regulatory environments. Uh, that really, a one-size-fits-all or even a two-size-fits-all is not enough. We need multiple options on the table, essentially independent of each other. There's no particular reason why this needs to be centralized in any particular group, i.e. the core team or some successors work group. Um, it can be one of them, but it's not something that I believe should be just one fund. It should be multiple funds uh, with different, in, based in different countries with different philosophies, with different uh, contributors, etc. And that's going to give the, the the diversification and the that you need. And then they each would make those kind of choices. Where you know, do we do this or that multisig? Do we do it? How we handling custody? How is handling compliance? How we handling privacy? All of these issues because they're going to have different situations. Uh, in each case, and, and then owners and developers will need to pick where they're most comfortable with. Just you have comments on that? Yeah, I mean, I th think about the core reason why the Monero core team exists, right? When Monero started, there needed to be a way for people to make decisions to take the protocol from <laughs> the <laughs> thankful for today person, run with decisions, uh, implement consensus changes, maintain the GitHub repos, things like that. And the Monero CCS, before that, the Monero FFS, <laughs> didn't start because it was just something that Core was the only one that could handle something like this. It just kind of came out of necessity and the ecosystem was small and um, they were kind of natural people to step in and build something. You know, none of the tooling existed <laughs> for any of these systems. So I think just they felt that it would be useful for them to step up and build this this tool. Um, and if you want to hear Fluffy Pony talking in early Monero history about why the FFS was originally built and later the CCS, I'm, he has interviews and I'm sure he could talk more about that. But um, you know, you don't need a core team to be involved with just an, you know, separate fundraising process, right? Any anyone can step in and do that community crowdfunding type system, and that is what Magic Grants has done with the Monero uh, Magic uh, Monero Fund is that people can through MoneroFund.org donate. Money gets sent to. Um, I mean. From Magic's perspective, they typically will have people who want to be paid with a normal dollar and receive bank, you know, uh, tax information and be able to report it easily. So that system is built so that the Monero is converted to dollars, sits in an FDIC bank account and under the coverage limits, and then people can complete milestones and just get a wire transfer in their bank account or, or whatever the check or you know, whatever people want. Um, or it can be converted back to Monero, but it the whole point of that was to remove the volatility risk and it was to make it so that there isn't really a wallet to be hacked and we're more back in traditional banking type situations, which has disadvantages for many people um, and for many situations. But uh, it was an example of a separate tool that was built because the CCS wasn't able to account for all cases. 
So I do think diversity will help with a lot of those things. Uh, there's talk now with making a nonprofit in the EU to help with the Monero Conferenco planning. And then as a result of this recent news, perhaps what they will do is have some sort of crowdfunding system as well for people in Europe who want tax ed deductions for donations and other things. That's an example where, you know, having just a U.S. entity doesn't help people in Europe. And so you need, you know, other options for people in Europe that are better tailored to them. Um, I, I do want to stray a little bit from trying to split the community into like a thousand different ways of doing things. And so someone approaches the situation and doesn't know who to ask for money and people don't know how to check for donations and things. So you will need separate community tools to help sort through this for people, right? It's like, you know, you have 12 competing standards. Oh, that's silly. We need one competing standard to, to do them, to do better than the others. And now you have just an additional competing standard. Um, so you need some way to address that problem. But ultimately, the CCS isn't something that the Monero community or the Monero core team has to do. Um, it's something that anyone can step up and provide similar types of services in a way that's compliant in, in their um, in their jurisdiction. And for the people who are donors and, and uh, grant recipients or, or funds recipients. And... Um, Honestly, I kind of think the core team has wanted to get rid of this responsibility for a while um, as an outside viewer. Um, and I think that although there are some advantages for having a community run, core team run, CCS uh, setup, that at the end of the day, it creates a bunch of headaches for donors and, and grant recipients alike. And I think in some some cases has caused more, more trouble and drama than it's worth, to be honest. Um, Although there is an advantage for a route like that, I think you need other other routes that are a lot more streamlined and simpler. And Magic is available today with MoneroFund.org to help with this to anyone who's willing to want some more traditional fundraising route. But um, I fully expect other people to step up and have a more uh, specific to Monero, all denominated in Monero, all kept in Monero wallets, more completely focused around the Monero ecosystem setup that's built too. One thing I'd like to comment on, and, and this is, if you look at Monero going back, say, to 2014, um, what we have seen in 2014, the project market capitalization is approximately one and a half million dollars. Right now, we're looking at roughly $3 billion. So that's a factor of 2000 in size growth of the community. What has occurred is that the core team has diminished in its responsibility on a relative basis quite drastically. But because of the massive growth of the community, it's over and in absolute terms, its responsibility has actually increased, which is really quite interesting. Uh, when we talk about some of these broader questions as are we going to diversify, how we're going to diversify further and whatever, and what the options are there. Um, I'm a very big believer that there definitely is very sizable advantage of diversification. I'm also very big believer with a lot of situations that you address 90% of the problem. Once you've addressed 90% of that diversification need, at that point, you set that goal again and you address the next 90% and so on and so forth. Uh, if you remember your high school mathematics, what I'm simply saying is that 0.9 recurring equals one. Um, 
And the point that I'm getting at is it's a lot easier to address 90% of an issue, set that as your goal, and then move on to the next phase for the next, than to try to go for 100% right off the bat. Uh, and this applies in general to all sorts of things. Environmental issues are a great example. Like get that rate of 90% of the pollutant, whatever it is, once you've achieved that goal, set the goal again and keep at it. That's way more easy to deal with than to try to get a rate of 100% in one cycle. So that's my sort of my general philosophy on all of this. I see a lot of what uh, Ricardo uh, for Fiponi suggested is something that was already going on. We've seen a significant move away from that decentralization. And that will continue in the community, how it's going to happen, what shape it's going to form. To a large degree, it's going to depend on community input. But that's kind of how I see it philosophically, the situation. I see it more from the point of view, you address 90% of an issue. And then once you've achieved that, then you move to the next 90%. How how does core currently currently function what what are they what task are they currently uh... well i mean if you read uh the the work groups that uh ricardo put out that's a pretty good description of it um there are certain things that you by the very nature kind of force uh some degree of centralization and there are other things that don't like for example take uh, merging now, merging, typically what happens is uh, our community uh, work group, a developer, developer work group, which is a consensus typically after MRL has reached a consensus on, on what needs to be merged. And then there's an actual function of merging that does happen at the core team level at this point in time. And so what you're doing is essentially implementing the community consensus. So those kind of things tend to be attractive from a... Uh, centralization perspective, but there's a lot of stuff that the core team is still doing that can be decentralized. And this is essentially the point of uh, what Ricardo's uh, recommendations were and went before you resigned. Um, and there's a lot of value in that. Um, so when it functions, it is essentially, there is uh, now six members officially, although they're really uh, you have you have Luigi and 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 uh, by your fate and myself as the more active members, and then you have a couple that are still active officially. I mean, you got uh, smooth, but he hardly participated. Uh, we did get some participation from uh, Noodle Doodle and from Northa. Uh but again, there are some questions as to you know, there's a lot of burnout I think in the group. I mean, the the three most active will be people who are not in the original core team. Now that uh, if you think about it, uh, uh, both Luigi and myself came on board in 2016, and binary fate is more recent than that. So the most active members are those that are most recent mm. in the core team. So that's going to be a really important message now that uh, Ricardo or Fluffy Pony has resigned. And I think you do have in any volunteer situation, you have essentially the issue of burnout. I mean, uh, that has to be addressed. So you need that fresh blood, no matter how you do it. And so, yes, uh, that's the kind of the functionality. Uh, obviously, there's going to have to be some decisions made on, on where to move forward from this uh, and, and how we're going to, you know, move forward. My personal opinion is that community, the community as a whole is going is to come out way stronger out of this whole affair, uh, not uh, as a result of this. Uh, 
are very, very positive. I don't have any particular uh, expectation that we're going to catch the thief, but I do have a significant expectation that there may be a community fundraising response to uh, mitigate the loss. That, to me, is a more probable result. Um, and there's a lot of lessons to be learned here. Uh, let's not kid ourselves. Uh, uh, on, a on a lot of very different levels, and a lot of lessons for everybody involved. Um, you know, what went wrong? How can we do better? How can we improve? What went right? I mean, there are obviously things that were done correctly, like se separating totally the the CCS from the general fund. That was definitely a, uh, something that was done very properly. So, Ar Arctic, do you do you see it then as a disbanding core is the, is the solution? And as well. As uh, I prefer, I think, I, th I do see it as a long-term solution, but I prefer the 90% method. I prefer 0.9 recurring to 1. Right. So my preference in a situation like this, particularly something so, uh, is that the way to handle it, uh, you, can, you may eventually end up with a very minimal component that is necessarily centralized, but there are things that can be done in a decentralized fashion should be done decentralized. So you focus on the 90% of the things that can be done in a decentralized fashion and you address them and then you deal with the rest. That's a much better approach than trying to go for 100% of anything. Um, so from my point of view on the matter is, I think if you do it suddenly, it could be very disruptive. I, I do think, however, that if we do it, you know, you do 90%, then you do 90%, then that's the way to go. You're going to get the same thing, but you're just going to do it in a way that is a lot more um, acceptable and, uh, and easier to accomplish. The reality is that addressing 90% is a lot easier than addressing 100%. Mm -hmm. And the biggest effort is that last 10%. So why not deal with the first 90? Once to achieve that, then we set the goal again for the next 90. That's kind of Justin, you, you have a similar take there, that, like, that this is the direction moving towards you know dismantling core and creating these work groups and iterating towards that uh perhaps i mean you you do need i i think that conversation is naturally going to come out as you talk about things like who has access to the github and who is the one that actually has the domain and who helps with a lot of these servers and stuff so i do think that um you know in one way or another these discussions are going to happen as the discussions for decentralization continue so um, I, I definitely believe in focusing on the big stuff first, uh, the most important stuff first and addressing that where possible. Um, so I, I, right now, Fluffy just kind of put out some ideas here. Um, like here are the main things that are being, that, that are on the table. These are the main things we do. And so, um, I say the community like it's a centralized thing because it definitely isn't, but the community. So basically people need to look at this and determine if there is something that they can jump up and take. There's some things like the community channels and CCS worker related items that can, like people can just step up and take on that scope today without any, any permission or anything related to that. But as it relates to who has the key setup for the general fund and who had, do we need a general fund? If we don't have a general fund, how do we pay for things, <laughs> right? Who pays for all this stuff? Um, and who owns gitmonero.org and things like that. There, I think those, you can't completely remove centralization from those types of components. So start with the big stuff. CCS is very much on brand 
And this will probably have continued discussions on what to do with DNS and IP and things as well as it continues. Well, I think it's a, it's a very sensible approach. That's exactly what, uh, you know, the uh, how to deal with this. How about some of like the, the, the real underlying issues, not so much uh coordinating but the technology we you know we do use or the the services we use like github itself right are there is that an attack vector is there something else we should be using um, um well there was a considerable amount of discussion at one point of moving to gitlab um again uh the the way you would address that i mean github is a centralized proprietary service owned by microsoft mm -hmm. And there are risks associated with that. There are ways of mitigating those risks. Generally, the best way to mitigate risk or something like that is for everybody to clone the GitHub and, and create multiple versions of it. So if something goes bad, then you can recover. Uh, I mean, there, there are ways to deal with stuff like that. That is a centralizing attack vector. But there are ways also to back it up and decentralize it in a backup fashion in order to mitigate that risk. So, and that was a, a very significant discussion on that particular topic, and it is a very important one, in my opinion. Um, you really have to look at what are centralized vectors of attack, how fundamental are they? There's some good things, and for example, uh, one thing that I really like about what uh, Ricardo proposes is to segregate the, the DNS hosting and IP aspects of that from the web hosting elements of it and, and maintenance of service. That's a really critical a good decision that those two, be, those two should be separated. There's a lot to be said for that. Um, so there, there, there are things that can be addressed and there are things that are easy to address. Uh, I think taking the risk out of something like GitHub is one of those. All right, guys. Uh, this was a marathon. There was a lot to cover. I appreciate you both coming on and doing this. Any any closing thoughts you guys have with regards to all this? Um, my closing thoughts are definitely join the Monero Community Workgroup channel. Um, that seems to be where most of the discussions are happening now. But ultimately, right now, the community needs more doers and more people who are willing to step up and take on particular roles and organize and commit time that it strictly needs people to show up with sort of just advice. Um, sometimes advice is useful and, and can help with various things, but I think there's a lot of, in a lot of discussions, there's a lot of advice and there's very little like, I'm willing to take on this particular role and step and yes, I do want to help with this particular thing and and build trust over time and, and, and commit to, to doing things. Um, so Definitely, there's a lot of people that love Monero, and I absolutely encourage everyone to have one role that they are able to actually commit to and help with, because this is only decentralized if there are people who are able to step up and take on these roles and do things. You know, people showing up and offering advice is useful, but also it's not that useful if there's the same people that are <laughs> expected to do the same things. So there, are, the the community should expect if you the community members of the community should expect for there to be difficult discussions and people who are pushed out of their comfort zone in establishing things luckily the, the monero community has a long culture of building work groups that are have their own leaders and their own way of organizing and it's all very decentralized in terms of how it's 
structured and generated, but I do encourage people to band together with a work group of other doers that are that are taking on specific actionable roles and actually organize and either build the thing or work on the thing and and actually well let's let's get something out of this. Let's not just have a discussion. It's, we, we need people who are fresh faces to step up and actually build certain components. Some of these things don't need people who have been around for a while. And, um, you know, there, there's certainly a desire for, for a shakeup, new people to step up, participate. And while that's always been the case, I think that it really is a, a clear need for it now. <laughs> um, what, what do you would say for people to, to, to then take action and get active, just join the Monero community work group and start to. Yeah. I mean, Monero is, is permissionless. There's, there's no one that, yes, there are people who are going to say you can't show up and just own the getmonero.org domain, right? There are certain boundaries that are there, but you can show up and just build whatever you want on the side. And that has always been the case. And that is how some of the best innovation in the Monero community has ever existed. People showing up and just building things. Um, I argue like the Monero CCS, sure, it was a core team that did it, but like someone showed up and just built the thing, right? It wasn't, you know, some blessing by the protocol that allowed that to happen, right? So it's um, it, it's like that for all sorts of different things here. Um, there are ways to make distribution better. There's ways to to help with things and everyone has their niche that they can improve on. And so you, you do need to step up and actually help with things though. Um because the Monero community needs people to do that. It, it doesn't have a company behind it. It needs you. Um, so I would say is- one final thing on the, the, the Monero core team has been kind of uh, quiet for a while. And I think that is one of the, there's advantages and disadvantages. The advantage is the core team scope never like continuously grew or anything where it's like, there is a centralizing force because the core team was usually pretty quiet that, there's that advantage that came from it, but a disadvantage is that I don't think yeah, you had champions in certain areas, like Arctic Mine would show up and be in champion in particular areas, and Luigi was doing a lot of work and, and helping with a lot of areas. And again, this is all donated volunteer time, but you need people who are actually you need people who step up, take on big roles, and are championing particular things. And for a lot of Monero's history, the core team wasn't really a champion in a lot of different things, at least in recent memory. Since 2017 and on, really, the core team hasn't you know, championed a lot of things. And so I think that uh, hopefully this is a, in a, an ability to hit refresh, get some more people involved, and to have work groups that are independently like actually focused on championing improvements in particular areas. Well, one of the things that's really important in, in any kind of volunteer organization is you've got to identify, and I, and I suggest people identify something that maybe needs help and that you really like to do um, and that you really care about. And that is your sort of your, your opportunity to build something and to contribute. Um, this is something I found in general in working in nonprofits that, okay, so something that needs to be done here that nobody else really likes to do, but that I really enjoy. And that's look for that kind of stuff um, and step up to it. I mean, that's one of the easiest way to get involved because you're going to end up doing something that you really enjoy. You're going to provide valuable contribution. And ideally, you may be picking stuff that other people don't want to do. 
I mean, I'll give you an example. It had nothing to do with um, with Monero, and I was working with a nonprofit, uh, and the, nobody really wanted to do the books. They hated it. And I came along, and it's something that I did not mind doing, and I actually enjoyed doing. Uh, lo and behold, you become the treasurer, and you, and you actually do that particular job. Um, and the thing is, it's just the hate. You know, if you, if you find stuff like that, you find something that people that needs to be done that others members of the community are not particularly interested in. Focus on that. Uh, if you look at some of the things that I've been doing, as uh, for example, in scaling, that's not a core team function. That is essentially a uh, MRL slash development function. Uh, or for example, my involvement in the Monero Policy Group. Again, that's not a core team function. Um, so it's important to realize that too. Uh, so you're looking at things that, can I do this? Do I enjoy it? Is this something I really want to contribute in? And then focus on that. Like, look at, look at Justin. He likes trying to trace Monero, right? And he's... Uh... Well, that's an interesting. I, I like to prove that, that you cannot do it in Bitcoin. So it's an interesting, fun <laughs> element here. You know, if you, if you Arctic <laughs> mind and I actually, whenever we have these policy discussions, we actually usually agree on most points as it relates to things, uh, especially with tracing. Like, but yes. anyway, it's uh, yeah, it's one of those things. You got to love what you do. Um, but in the Monero community's case, we need people who are taking on specific tasks like i will do this x thing i'll do this y thing and i will have discussions with people not just to offer advice in like a super broad perspective you know in a community room you should be hey we have we need to build we need to build a crowdfunding platform how do we make that better where are there any security things we need to improve let's do a review and focus on that particular component and make that better. Let's implement a fix. Let's implement changes. And you need that constant push for improvement or else things are going to stagnate. And I do think that with the Monero core team, again, advantage of it stagnating is that you don't have this big push to take over more things in the community just because they're the ones working. But disadvantage is that a lot of things stagnated. And you can argue We've had all sorts of better improvements for how to have security of wallets and things, better software over the years, and those things just weren't implemented because there wasn't really a push to have those things implemented. And you do need a people whose role is to push to always make various aspects better. So hopefully this re breathes new life on particular components, roles that Core were playing that push that to be better. Um, and one final thing I'll say... E I encourage you to find whatever role is useful for you, to you, but uh, the Magic Monero Fund elections open uh, next month. So you can nominate to be a voter, which you basically say, hey, I have an interest in Monero. This is what I've done to help with Monero in the past. And then you congrats, you get to qualify to be a voter. And then you can also um, say that you want to run for committee. And this committee is what actually, you, you have actual calls that you will attend and you will build things like you actually sit down and build a crowdfunding platform like they did last year we're going on about a year since they launched that and people whose job it is uh volunteer that is to <laughs> to um organize and build better things so i encourage more work groups to take that type of approach um have people that hold themselves accountable and continuously push for things being better and i'm glad that this is an opportunity to help with core and and move and move some of their responsibilities forward
Yeah, all all in all, uh, I you know it was an expensive lesson, um, but I, I do I do feel a lot of positive energy, right? I mean, I've never seen the Monero work group as active as it is with people in there uh, chatting it up. Like you said, you know, we, we need actual doers as well. But it's good to see uh, growing engagement, um, and uh, it, this likely will to lead to improvements in essentially in governance and, and managing the project and making it more decentralized and how the community works together. Um, do you and and also uh, you know I think maybe it lights a fire and I think there was already one lit under us, but in terms of improving the tech, right? Um, as we sit here and we look at the. Tr uh, the transaction graph that you put together, full membership proofs, hopefully around the corner. And I think now uh, it, there's more political will than ever in, in the Monero community to kind of push towards that end of implementing full membership proofs. Anything you guys want to say on that one last point? Because I think that's kind of a, a glimmer of hope as well. Do you think we are on a path towards implementing full membership proofs in, in, in the near future? Oh, Absolutely. I mean, uh, when I listened to, to uh, Luke Barker's uh, talk in Prague, one of the things that I looked at and ran the numbers, and in fact, uh, on how it would impact scaling, what the impact would be. And the fact of the matter is that full membership, we are looking at about 10,000 byte transaction, and Monero can easily handle this today, um, simply because of Moore's law, uh, as, uh, from a scaling perspective. So it's not even close to what we did uh, in 2017, when we moved to 13.5 uh, byte uh, kilobyte transactions, so it's definitely doable. Uh, I had an opportunity to talk at the time with a lot of the small blocker groups, you know, people who were really concerned about the growth and, and so on, and, and and come up with a decent consensus on some of these issues. Uh, so we have, I say, a way forward on, on the scaling side to support something like that. Um, so I'm very comfortable with that. I think it's a matter of time before it's going to happen. I also think we need a robust uh, mechanism for multi-sig, and that's part of what is also coming out of things like the, um, the Seraphis upgrade and so on in Monero. So, so there's important uh, changes that need to take on the technology side to facilitate this. But I'm very, very positive on this. If anything, I suspect this, the, uh, what's happened here is going to add impetus to that. Uh, there is a blessing in disguise in, in, in this. I see a lot of very bright future uh, for the community, for the Monero project in general. Um, and I think even just from looking at the community response to how this happened and, and, and so on, that really encouraged me. A uh, very constructive approach in general. Very, uh, there are some of the odd thing, but uh, for, in, in the whole, I was really impressed. So, no, I'm very, 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 very positive for the future. Same here, Justin. Well, one final point I want to leave. It is on the commute on the community point. Okay. Go to the community channel to meet people, but you're not. Don't don't think that you being in the channel is you doing the work. Talk to some other people. Get a separate channel where you talk about things and actually work on your thing. You're not going to work on a thing in a really broad community channel. You can only talk about like you know the community meta stuff in the community channel. So. Find people, take a new product, project, take it somewhere else, and actually work on it. Because otherwise, you're not actually building the thing. So anyway, that, that's that's my advice with how to 
focus on actually building stuff. Very, very good points. It's, it's the town square where you can find people that are working on things and go off into your, your corner with them and, and start to actually do the hard work. Justin, yeah. do you want to comment on full membership proofs at all? Do you, do you can you give us any um, further insights? I know there was at the Chicago meetup, maybe there were some things that were, were learned there. Yeah, I mean, full chain membership work is not as fast as I think most people would like. Um, but it is, the work is ongoing. I think there, the community could benefit from additional resources working on the actual implementation of it. Um, you know, several, ideally we could do crowdfunds for additional people that are working full time to actually focus on implementing this in various aspects of the code. And, um, we, you know, we have great minds that are working on that. Luke and Justin were both at the meetup and gave presentations and they both did very invaluable work and continue to do work to implement this. But, um, you know, the community will still need resources to actually do this implementation that involves full-time focused help and it involves audits after the fact to help with various things. Um, and, you know, there's there's certainly still major questions as it relates to um, the actual final security of it, which obviously will be resolved if it would ever be implemented. But uh, there is additional work that needs to be done. And you know there are resources that are that need to actually be involved with deploying that um so i fully expect additional crowdfund type campaigns to occur for people that have the capacity to push this needle forward and i encourage everyone to actually donate to that and um, from a monero research lab perspective this has been pretty well known that whole chain memberships proofs are going to be needed for targeted surveillance for for years um and you know, for, for certain types of attacks, we realize that ring size a thousand just isn't going to cut it, right? So, um, yeah, you're going to need very large numbers, and you need the you need the capacity to actually implement this thing. What happens to um, what? Wait, what's the name of your uh, moon Moonstone Research? How does Moonstone Research deal with full membership proofs? That's that's going to be the, uh, the, the uh, real see. Th there's never an end to information you can investigate. So even if you remove the transaction graph, there's all sorts of stuff you can still do. Um, you know, out of bound sharing of information. You know, you can remove all the metadata, and you can still like. There's always something. Ask you still assist with people. Who did you pay, and how did you pay them? That's information that's completely out of band. Um, so, it's. Uh, there's always something to look at, right? I mean, when you're paying with cash, even if you had no serial numbers on any of them, there's always something to ask about people who make cash transactions. So, um, I would leave you with, I'll make a comment on this. This is really important. I think that the IRS needs to learn from their success in the 1930s with Al Capone. Um, they got the guy for tax evasion and it was a totally cash. Uh, economy that he was working in. I think we have lost the reality that there are ways to deal with things like money laundering and tax evasion without engaging in this detailed surveillance operations. Uh, and you can in a cash-like environment. And to a large degree, it is, yes, it is old school, because basically, in many respects, what Monero is doing and I can relate to that. It's turning back the clock to when I was a kid, to the 1960s. And it didn't mean that people didn't collect taxes and the government didn't catch criminals and all this kind of stuff. It all this happened. It just was done in a different way. 
And I think uh, in a general sense, we need to wake up to that reality. So I, I'm, I'm impressed that Moonstone uh, Moons, Moons, uh, Research is prepared to address an environment where you turn back the clock for years. I think it's more fun. Building a mass surveillance tool is silly. Like, you know, I, I think that most companies are building tools that intend to be this whole, like, mass surveillance, see everything, and Arctic point frankly my point it doesn't work when you try to do such broad everything but if you i like focusing on particular investigations so um you drown in the ether you try yeah so drown I like in ether. no no seriously <laughs> right now that's the biggest blockchain you drown in ether so. <laughs> all right gentlemen we will we will leave it at that this is a marathon two hours greatly appreciate uh your time and uh, just appreciate you guys in general everything you guys have done Monero. Uh, thank you guys thank you thank you doug hi Monero land thank you for joining us on this week's episode we release new episodes every week you can find and subscribe to our show on youtube odyssey itunes spotify stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts go to Live for a full list of places where you can watch and listen if you want to interact with us guests or other podcast listeners you can follow us on twitter Monero Talk is also made possible from contributions by viewers and listeners like you. And supporting us is easier than ever by typing in MoneroTalk.crypto in your Monero.com or CakeWallet send address field to send us a tip. Once again, thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to being back next week.